1: We teach students that success comes from doing these things, following the right steps, and you'll make it, right? And there's some self-learning along the way, but really, I've learned in the dozen years, I've made so many mistakes, I botched so many photo stories and so many assignments I made. Like, you know, the day, I remember the day, this is the clear one in my memory, the day Osama bin Laden uh was announced dead uh it was the evening actually i um i i knew it was big news but i didn't understand how big it was because i didn't grow up in america and i tried to get to Times square to take pictures but like traffic was just so bad and i just kind of gave up and i just thought like i'll come at it tomorrow it'll be fine and and but the best story the best images for the day came from that night of celebrate the night where people were out to, to see what was going on, the Americans were out to celebrate in Times Square, and I'd gone home to sleep because I didn't understand the gravity of it. You know, I mean, I understood that it was important, but I didn't, I didn't capture, I didn't understand that the psychological weight of it, you know, because I didn't grow up in America. And those are the little things I wish I, I took time to understand as a as a young journalist you know more than just focusing on just doing the job i'm homeless i'm wandering from country to country every every month or two and you know staying in hotels you know staying airbnbs staying with friends i have a lot of things around the world i mean my 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 stuff is not in one place i don't pay rent anywhere i don't have an address Part of the job, I, I go from job to job, if not, I just sit around in a city where I have friends and, and relax yeah. there while well, I wait for my next gig. And that's what that looks like.
0: There are millions of butterflies, if everyone caused the beginnings of a storm, Earth would be in chaos.
1: A butterfly flapped its wings in the Amazon, and subsequently a storm ravages half
0: of Europe. And how far forward would we need to go in your life to show the difference you make the very first time i heard of marcus yam was in my college newspaper there was this story about an international student who had studied aerospace engineering just a few years before me he had found his calling while covering engineering students projects at the local chapter of aiaa the american institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Eventually, his coding took him to what he does today, photography as an insanely talented, roving foreign correspondent for the LA Times. Once an aerospace engineering student at UB, and today a three-time recipient of the Pulitzer Prize for his photography, rewarding how he tells stories that impacted the past decade, raw and urgent images that capture history, humanity, and society. Ultimately, what truly fascinates me is how leading his life this way took him to where he is and to what he does today, telling powerful stories through images. Marcus has a passion for telling stories, for showing us the world as he sees and lives it. And well, he does it so well. So I decided to reach out to him as I wanted to know how a once international student like me who studied aerospace got to live his life as he puts it as freely as possible to living his dream, his new American dream. Hey Marcus, (laughs) welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me this morning. How are you and where are you?
1: Perfect. Okay. (laughs) I am doing all right, all things considered. I am sitting in Beirut, Lebanon.
0: What are you doing there?
1: I'm here for a few reasons. I'm here to bring equipment and work gear here into my little storage closet. And I am also here to attend a wedding for one of my co-workers.
0: Well, I am one of the worst photographers in my entourage. You and I have a bit in common. You were not born in the US. You were born in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. You came to the US to study and you chose the university at Buffalo U.B. I think I first came across your story when I was reading our school newspaper And as I was reading about your work, I realized that you also had studied engineering. Proof that you can do anything with an engineering degree. You were in aerospace engineering. And I told my husband, Mike, about what I found out. And my husband being the biggest space nerd I know, he was like, oh yes, yes, Marcus was part of AIAA, an amazing photographer. You've told your story so many times about how you left engineering to become a photographer. And we'll get back to it in a moment. But can you first please tell me what took you to the u.s in the first place and what drew you to aerospace
1: before the origin of all this which is what took me to the u.s really happened by chance when i was in high school i uh i was a gamer and i, I played a lot of games um a lot of uh, competitive e-games esports games and okay. you know this is when esports wasn't really a thing yet mm-hmm. it wasn't a, a a job and but we were making money um we were winning tournaments and all that, and I thought to myself this could be a job one day. I almost dropped out of high school, I made a pact back then with my best friend uh, you know we would do this eSports thing together and and uh, so for the last maybe year and a half two years of high school, it was kind of squandered away. I maybe attended one third of school, my last year oh, of school, <laughs> yeah, playing games so. At the very, very end of high school, right before the O levels, I, I decided I had this premonition that my life wasn't going to be great if I went down this road. And I decided to go the other way quickly. And um, I had a few classmates that were very kind to teach me everything that you they learned in the last two years of high school <laughs> into three weeks. They took shifts, a couple hours each. Wow. In the, and I sat in the library for many, many hours and just like crammed everything in and we took that last high school exam and I managed to out of 9 subjects managed to get 5 A's you know not bad everything else not so good but those grades weren't good enough for the the prestigious college programs that my parents wanted me to go to in e major there's an expectation that you know if you do well you go to Australia or you go to the UK those are very prestigious educational programs mm-hmm. and And nobody really thought about going to America because it's like not not a spoken thing, but amongst Malaysians, or at least like back then, the American programs were the bottom of you know bottom of the educational system. Like you know, don't go to America. Like America's for dummies. You know, <laughs> you can go to Europe or go to Australia. One of right. those two. Like you know, they're they're smarter than everybody else. So, and I didn't qualify. I didn't have good enough grades. So I ended up going to like a, a smaller like community community style college, mm-hmm. and that's all I could afford. It that's all my grades could get me, and and I I could only get into the American program there, barely. But that being said, that that wasn't the only reason why I wanted to go to America. My parents really wanted me to go to the UK and Australia, and, and one of being, like you know, being 17, 16, 17, and 18, that, was, that is the perfect age to say no. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I I just said no and I was like I'm not going to where you want me to go and I had a globe growing up like yeah. a, and and I think every kid should have a globe Agreed. to know <laughs> to, to to have them understand how big this world is right. Yeah. So and I just put America. my finger on one end I put my finger randomly on the other end and I was like oh it's America like you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> so is it literally at the opposite of the globe uh, malaysia and i america? mean
1: w- i remember doing that it wasn't really literally opposite i just mm-hmm. randomly put my finger on oh, america really? and i thought to myself i'm going to america because the <laughs> father's the most father's point i could get for, away from my parents uh, <laughs> that was like the maybe the number one reason why i went to america not like a, a very like interesting story but like you know oh, the story it's... Of, of coming of age and like wanting mm-hmm. to like be your own person and and be your own self and, and that's the reason why I ended up in America and when okay. I did I, I I I had this plan I was going to pursue my childhood dreams of you know maybe one day you know becoming an astronaut like it'll be it's sweet but like it's almost impossible to become one right and um, but I, I, I really like engineering i had a a natural affinity to understanding how things worked Mm -hmm. physics was my the easiest subject i excelled it in school so i thought to myself like well this is clearly obvious that i'm going to be an engineer one day and then i i really so i signed up for an aerospace program and the reason why i ended up in buffalo was partly because i um i qualified for the other i had gotten into the other schools across america uh with from my grades from college. and But the reason why I ended up in Buffalo was because I followed a girl there. Aha. <laughs> Classic uh. mistake, you know.
0: Mistake <laughs> or not, right? I mean, it took you where you are now.
1: <laughs> Classic choice right, a young, right, right, young man right. would make, right?
0: I came back to Buffalo for a guy too, so.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. It all works out at the end. Yeah. So, but I ended up there and, uh, you know, it was great. I loved it. I loved every... I wouldn't change it for the world. And if I had to do it again, I'd do it all the same.
0: You, so you did your four years of bachelor mm-hmm. of Uh and I think I uh, heard a pretty cool story. I thought, like, as an international uh, former student, that you needed some English credits uh, to um, kind of validate your whole uh, program, um, and that's how you studied at the Spectrum, the school newspaper, um, in order to get. Um, I mean, yeah, the, grad- the credits to graduate. Is that is that what happened?
1: Yeah, so, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if this applies to, like, international students from Europe or other places where it's English-speaking, but they, we were told from the academic advisors at that time that we needed, like, these English credits to right. graduate. And uh, because all students, they assume all students, you know, didn't speak English growing up. Mm-hmm. And they just learned it later, and English is my first language. So I, oh, just really? thought, yeah. <laughs> so I thought, no, I mean, I'm not
0: going to do it. <laughs>
1: no, of course not. I mean, the story of my life is I say no. I always say no it's to true. everybody, you know, I, so I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do something else. So I, um, I happened to walk by the student union one day and I came across this flyer and it kind of piqued my interest. And I was like, well, you know, come work for us, right. Or take pictures for us. And, you know, we can't pay you money, but we can offer you some credits. And I was like can you offer me these credits, like these ones? (laughs) And they were like, sure. I mean, it worked out. When I did it, I had the time of my life because I've never done photography in my life before, all that.
0: Really? That was not like something, a hobby on the side uh, growing up?
1: No. I mean, I I did one art class like when I was a child and I drew the same picture as a child over and over again. (laughs) what was it the river a tree a mountain that's it that's all I knew how to draw like you know because it was it was actually from a painting in my house like Ah. in my parents house so I only knew how to draw that you know it's always the same variation of the same mountain scene basically Mm -hmm. and um, so I wasn't really well versed in the arts and crafts and all that and I never spent any time doing that as a kid growing up in Malaysia it was all math and science math and science math and science so when I picked up the camera and it did all that, I had a blast. I never had that much fun in my life before and I thought, eh, this is this is cool, this is nice, it could be a good hobby one day.
0: I think I, I heard you talk about your First American dream, Uh, I mean, the original one, the one that uh, 20 year old Marcus had. And so back then, Um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it involved a boat and going fishing every Sunday.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) um,
0: (laughs) I think it's fair to say that you're living uh, right now a life that's pretty far from uh, that life that you envisioned initially, Uh, and probably all of us, right? Um, So, what does your life look like uh, today? Where what? Fifteen years later.
1: What does my life look like right now? Mm-hmm. It's a, a strange departure from the life that I had from and uh, env- had envisioned as a twenty-year-old Marcus. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in twenty years old, at you know, when I was in college, I wanted to one day have a stable job, buy a house, buy a boat, go fishing with my friends, hang out with my friends every weekend, like you know. That was the life that I thought that was made for me and that's the life that was I prescribed to. Today, well, I'm homeless. I'm wandering from country to country every every month or two and you know, staying in hotels, you know, staying in Airbnbs, staying with friends. I have a lot of things around the world. I mean my, my, my stuff is not in one place. I don't pay rent anywhere, I don't have an address part of the job, I I go from job to job, if not, I just sit around in a city where I have friends and and relax there while I wait for my next gig. And that's what that looks like.
0: So travel is a huge uh, part of uh, what you're you're doing today and how you work, right? Um, Was that something growing up? I know that photography was not something growing up, so I'm curious.
1: No, travel was really not something I did growing up. I, I maybe went like on vacation once or twice with my family, my, you know. But for the most part, I don't remember traveling that all too much. I don't even remember packing my bags as a kid. So this is all very new to me. Living out of a suitcase is a, a strange and and foreign concept for me, at least. I'm, I'm learning as I go every day, and like as I say, like you know, it's a, it's a challenge. But that this is where. I feel like my strengths, as in it, my strengths developed you know from engineering school, come into play here. Mm-hmm. And I'm logistically oriented, thanks to engineering school, and you know detail oriented. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think about all the things I have, and I a need for work and need for life, and I sprinkle them all around the world. You know, I put some in Seoul, Korea, South Korea. I put some in Hong Kong. I put some in. I put some in Kabul, Afghanistan. I put some in Beirut, Lebanon, and I now put some in New York, New York. So it's a very, very different life, I would say.
0: So from an engineering uh, uh, student to being a three-time Pulitzer awardee uh, for your work in Afghanistan that you just mentioned with the LA Times in 2022 uh, for your and I quote, raw and urgent images uh, of the U.S. departure from Afghanistan as well as in 2015, I believe, with the Seattle Times, um, for all of these um, awards have been uh, rewarding your work in breaking news photography. Can you explain exactly what is breaking news photography?
1: The simple version of, of what is breaking news photography is, is something that is actively going on, that is actively evolving. And when you arrive, you are almost a part of You arrive to a scene that is not over you know that that is like you know in um in, in Seattle when I arrived at the landslide when I got there I was one of the first people there and I was I arrived and I was stopped from going further and I walked into the landslide I decided to walk I was like they won't let my car in but they said you can walk in so I started to walk in and I can still feel the ground moving like you know it's still you know things are still happening and my editor called me and said, like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm walking in. He's like, are you stupid? Like, do you want to die? Like, you know, and, and he basically said, like, I got a better idea. I'll put you in a helicopter. You'll fly in, you know. So that's what happens. And, and I think the, the 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 gist of it is, um, like, in Afghanistan, breaking news photography is defined because it's classified that way because I was there when things were happening. You were in in the sense you are in the center, the eye of the hurricane. You know, you are there, you are in the middle of it all, basically. And you are capturing things as they rapidly evolve and you're kind of rapidly also adapting to the change, the the fast changing pace of of the environment, the news, the story, um, and everything else that's going on. So, uh, and then Afghanistan was a great example because I arrived the, on the fourteenth the day before the country fell through the Taliban and, and well, before the Taliban arrived in kabul and and when on the fifteenth all the when the Taliban announced that it were, they were circling Kabul, a lot of Western uh, organizations Western news organizations were pulling their journalists out They were calling everybody like, "Get to the airport now, everybody like we have an airplane waiting for you we have an uh, exit route everybody out so I my friends from like the Washington Post and the New York Times all called me and they said like we are leaving now so you can come with us or you can stay and um, yeah and I
0: what made you decide to stay
1: I decided to stay because rule number one of what I do is when people zig you zag when people go left you go right and that's rule number one of journalism. Number right. two is I really believe in, in staying for the story. Um, I believe that it was worth the um, it was worth the potential risk involved and, and I didn't know I didn't know enough to know why I should just leave without, you know, staying and investigating. I I wanted to find out. And I wanted to say, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they will be hostile to the journalists. Then I'll leave. But I don't know until I see it with my own eyes. I'm not going to read some report on Twitter or some things people say on Twitter and be afraid and run, right? So, for the most part, I wanted to stay to see this through. But a lot of the the, the other last reason why I wanted to stay was because this war echoes of the Vietnam War. So much of this war, so much of this occupation reminds me of the stories I read in Vietnam.
0: I'm, I'm curious, you know, in assignments like this, and it sounds like it's most of your assignments, um, how do you gauge danger? So I understand that uh, you're trying to go where people don't go, I understand that you're trying to tell the story, but there is also a, uh, almost a sanity check, right? Like, where do you draw the line to keep yourself uh, safe and to make sure you get home to tell the stories that you're reporting? Where do
1: on? I draw the line? Um, the line is my life, right, at the end of the day. <laughs> um, how do I draw it? it it's, it's hard to describe it. A lot of people have asked that question. It's hard to describe. There's no science to figuring out how you draw this line. I think a lot of it goes, no, no but it goes by intuition, gut feeling. When I, well, my gut told me to stay because my gut told me that you know, I was going to be able to do this work and I was going to be OK. I was going to figure out a way to stay safe. Um, but if they start, you know, and so in some instances, like in the war in Ukraine, you know, there are some days where my gut tells me it's time to go. And I listen to that gut feeling, you know, even though it's still safe. If my gut tells me it's time to go, I go. Like, you know, I had one instance in Ukraine where you have to listen to it. I had three bad things happen to me in one day. And even though it was a really quiet day, my gut told me to leave and I left. And I'm not going to question it, even though it was a quiet day. But we, it was just three things happened back to back. To me, maybe it's superstitious, superstition, but I listened to it.
0: What were those bad things? Do you remember?
1: Stepping on a booby trap, and then it was um, a, a slashing a tire. <laughs> and then it was uh, something as small as like dropping my camera. My good luck had run out for the day, and I needed to leave. And uh, So I'm superstitious like that, and that's where I draw the line. If I... My gut feeling tells me it's not. Don't go, don't go. How
0: how do you work? Um, I was uh, watching some of your stories when you were in Ukraine a few weeks ago, um, and it looks like it's not only LA Times people, uh, it's uh, what, other photographers? Um, I mean, it's not solo work, is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Um, Do you work with other media? Um, Does everybody have different roles, or do you just kind of, like... Um, go after stories together how does that work
1: for the most part we work alone we we work like alone as in like me and another uh me and my co-worker a writer we would work together when we both work for the la times and and we hire a local driver or a, a, a local translator and we just you know in, in that sense that's a full car it's four people in the car
0: is that what we call a fixer
1: Yes, similar, but a fixer does more than translate. A fixer arranges things. They, a fixer is like a, a like a TV producer or a radio producer. They 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 book people for interviews. They find people for in. They basically have connections and they find those people. A translator. We usually use a translator because half the time, in some of these situations, you don't really need a fixer. You just need a translator. It's much better that way because a translator like excels at just translating. Like you know what people are saying directly into, like, you know, like, the perfect translation.
0: Without interpreting or anything.
1: Right, without interpreting. They just basically, you know, you're getting the full quote from people, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, with fixers, you know, most fixers have different skill sets. Not everybody's good at translating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for, for, for working in a foreign language, having a translator, a really good translator is way better than having you know a decent fixer or a good fixer you know for me at least like I found that more interesting because for interviews that's where it really counts
0: Um, this may sound like a very I mean as I'm absolutely not in your field so um forgive my, my ignorance but like how do you set the path to a picture is this um um do you know what you're looking for as you get somewhere or um, is um, your, your, your creation, uh, n- you taking these pictures, very spontaneous? H- how, does that, how does that work? I assume it's a healthy balance.
1: It's a little bit of a balancing trick between the two. I mean, it was, uh, it's an organic process, meaning I think even if I think I know what I'm looking for, when I show up, it doesn't look like that. You know the scene or the people or the situation does not even like happen that way, and you kind of have to be comfortable in in be comfortable in having no agency over anything that happens or anything that's presented to you. Also, in a way, you've gotta in a way create a sense of agency over having no agency. As a, as, a, as a photographer, as a journalist, you've got to be comfortable with that. So when I walk into the places, I, I meet new people, I'm just basically opening. i got to practice, in a, a sense, my editor calls this radical openness, which is to keep an open mind and you've got to approach it. Like you've gotta, uh, when you meet people, you walk into a scene, you've got to like really like let go of everything you know and just be there in the moment and like absorb everything and try to find the best picture or the best, you know, thing to to document. Um, and so that's how we approach it.
0: And so do you kind of see the picture before it's taken or do you rediscover it afterwards? Like, I don't know, like you, you, you have a full day or you're done with your assignment and you're getting back to wherever you came from. Um, how, how does that work?
1: I see. I see the picture before I take it. It depends. I mean, like, I I don't think about whether or not it's good or bad. I just think I I take a picture when I'm moved by seeing something, right? If if you know, if I think sometimes I see an image and I take it. Sometimes I I see what could be an image and I get ready to take it. So it depends. Like there are different like you know uh, different approaches, but it I, I I have to be moved by it. Right? as a photographer, as even as a journalist, you know that sometimes you hear a quote and you just know that's the quote and you just want to like write that down and document it. And I, it's the same way for photography. I sit in the car sometimes and I see something interesting passing by and I say, I'll tell the driver to stop, stop, stop. I'll jump out of the car immediately and start taking pictures of it and talking to the people and, and or capturing what I saw on camera. And i don't come back to it I, I don't in this line of work that we do, um, we never have a second chance, almost never get a second chance to revisit a scene, because um, you have to assume that you won't take the same road coming back, or you know you won't have time or something may happen and so whatever you have in front of you is the only chance you get, and you've got to be comfortable with making you know, doing your work in a short period of time, you know, sometimes it's less than an hour. Sometimes it's only 10 minutes. <laughs> and you've got to get everything and you've got to move, you know. And um, in, in this type of journalism, at least, it, it's, like, it's almost like learning how to slice onions in the air.
0: It's <laughs> <That's> good energy. <laughs> it is,
1: it, I mean, you don't do it perfectly, but you learn how to do it, right? Because you've got to, at the end, at the end of the day, get the onion sliced. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's pretty or or, or or not, you just have to do it.
0: And so you, you're, you're talking about like being comfortable doing things uh, quickly, uh, as, as you're saying, it sounds like you're forever on call as well. So like, do you sleep? Do you sleep with your camera ready to go with like SD cards and batteries and like, you know what I mean? Like, how, how does that work? How do you rest?
1: <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I draw from my experiences, like from, from, from watching how firefighters, Police officers, soldiers, the way they operate and like the way they prepare their for their missions and all that stuff and and I prepare myself the same way, so i 'm always have a bag ready i uh, you know several bags for several different contingencies ready to go, you know different field kits, different pouches for different types of things, and like everything 's organized properly, so if I have a certain type of trip i I'm always ready, like everything's packed and ready to go in different compartments. I'm always on call, um, in 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 a strange way, but you know, not like in a way where like you got to be here in five minutes, right? It's more like you this is happening. We need you here in the next, you know, 24 to 48 hours because you know it takes a a flight to get there and takes like you know preparation and all that. But yeah, you can be on call sometimes and have to run. So like I was on call in I was sitting in New York preparing to go to Afghanistan and my editor called me and says they started cancelling flights to Ukraine. I think we think the war might start. So you need to go to Ukraine like in 24 hours. <laughs> so I just basically dropped the bag for Afghanistan, picked up the bag for Ukraine and went. <laughs> so I don't have to spend any time packing basically, <laughs> Everything's ready.
0: I work with audio and words, right? This is how I report what I feel, what I see, what I witness. Um, You do that with pictures. We have a saying, I think it's the same in English, a picture is worth a thousand words. Is that true? Can we tell absolutely everything with photography?
1: I mean, it's really, uh, (laughs) it's really, what's the word? Uh, uh, It's a lot to assume that a picture can tell a thousand (laughs) words. It's a lot to assume that words can tell everything or audio can tell everything. I think... I think we live in a generation where you need all the formats to work together to really tell a richer story. And I think that's the beauty of journalism in the digital world right now, that we are able to tell a very rich and vibrant story, you know, not through just one format, you know, through multiple formats working together. When pictures and words marry and sound marry each other, it becomes this beautiful thing. It's the same with cinema, you get you know video and, and sound, and you, it just becomes this beautiful thing, you know, And I see it that way, and, and yes, pictures on its own and audio and all its formats on its own can really do a really wonderful thing if, if everything in, in, in the picture was perfect. like the light was perfect, the composition is perfect, the moment is perfect, yeah. But those pictures are, are few and far between. You know you make only maybe less than five of them in your entire life, like the most perfect picture you know and 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 for the most part i i think it's it's you know I think that saying is an old saying, but I think you know there is some truth to that, but i almost I almost always believe in in marrying the formats together and collaborating with other journalists and and doing you know. And doing one thing well and not doing everything.
0: Um, and it's true, I think, uh, in, the, in the digital world, as you're saying, the, the, the marriage, the combination of uh, all these different mediums. Marcus, what happens after you take a picture? Um, you know, we talk about the picture itself, what we see in it, but um, after you take it, how does your picture go on to live and touch and shake people the way you're hoping it, it, it will? You know, like, are you part of that story? Uh, how, how, how does that work? i may say
1: (laughs) sure i mean i generally not try not to be a part of the story um i don't insert myself as much but i do try to engage our readers um i I feel like uh photojournalism has changed in a way because of social media Um, there's a lot more engagement and a lot more feedback from the author from the photographer from the journalist right i i tend to after i take a picture I engage, you know, before or after the picture, I engage the, the, the person, you know, in the picture. You know, the people that we photograph or the scene, I try to, like, look around. After I take a picture, if, the, if it's an inanimate object or a, a landscape, I wander around and I, I look for every angle. But if it's a person, I ask a lot of questions. I see how they're doing, you know. I, I try to engage in a conversation. And, and, and by doing so, sometimes a better picture comes along if you engage people. And I most often times have to make sure I, I cross my T's and dot my I's, you know. I, you know as a journalist, you, you know this, you know, you get the names, you get the age, <laughs> you, get, you get the information about where they're from and for your captions, and that usually starts a conversation with them, and, and, and I look for other pictures, and I ask questions about possibility, what they know. I ask for advice, like, what do you know? What can you tell me? about, you know, life here and like what I should be, you know, I am the outsider coming into people's lives half the time. So I'm always curious about what people know about their surroundings and never assume that you know everything.
0: I mean, you've been reporting on, on so uh, as you said, like not only people, but um, um, have you ever... I don't know if it's like kept in touch but like you know like uh know what happened to these people that you captured that helped you tell that story after sometimes
1: i keep in touch with people um some people's some of the some of the people i photograph their their lives kind of intersect with mine in a weird way and 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 some some of them i do keep in touch with i you know um for some of the afghans that i've photographed and 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 interacted with i do keep in touch with those folks because i'm curious to see how their lives would turn out and i'm genuinely concerned about you know how things are going to unfold for them in the coming years um but obviously like you know our lives are my our lives and our work is multifaceted and rapidly moving i can't keep in touch with everybody i photograph you know and and, and, and it, it it kinda comes and goes and you know, eventually I'll have to move on and focus on other people and you know some you know, and it, it happens. But I do try to act try to keep in touch with folks who I think, that, you know, I'm I'm curious about and I want to know more. And um and and it's nothing wrong with that and I think it's good because ultimately before I'm a photographer or a journalist, I'm a human being. And you generally just want to check in on people.
0: Talking about follow up uh, can you tell me about, what was his name, Darl Snyder? Is that Darl Snyder? Sure. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Darl Snyder was a a lovely gentleman who owned a house, you know, out in Lake Isabella uh, in Kern County, California. And during the Erskine wildfires, when, you know, it kind of picked up and burned around Lake Isabella, I had I was there on assignment to cover the wildfire and I was chasing the very very edge the very front of the wildfire and I was following it and I followed the the flames and 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 it came in front of his house basically and I came in front of his house it's like you know and it came in front of his house and saw that the flames were surrounding his house so and hadn't gone in yet so I I started to take pictures of the you know the front entrance, the gate of his house, with the you know, with the smoke in the background, with covering the sun, and the American. He had an American flag waving in front. So I thought, oh, this is an interesting picture. It's not the best picture, but it's an interesting picture. I took a few photos, and moved on. I ran back in the car, and we drove on, and and I didn't actually notice him, but but he was actually nearby, standing maybe maybe across the street, watching me, and I didn't know. And he watched me as I just took my pictures and moved on and 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 interestingly enough, he thought that I was a vulture coming in to like you know capture the misery and all that stuff and 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 moved on and but he didn't know much and you know but eventually he followed our coverage, he followed the work that we did, and you know that he that he he eventually saw that I wasn't just going around photographing homes getting destroyed, I was also doing other things. I was, you know, following up on, you know, people who lost their homes. I was, you know, actually in it, like talking to them, getting information, like, you know, um, doing more than just showing misery, basically. And he appreciated that and changed his mind. And what had happened is he took the flag down. He replaced the flag with a new flag. He took the old flag, folded it up in a military fas- uh, triangle, uh, made a custom frame and wrote a letter to me and sent it to my office. I had, was on my first assignment overseas for the LA Times. I was in Iraq, sitting in. Uh, I was in an like a, a where, like a almost like an abandoned building with a bunch of soldiers as you know they were on on the front lines of of Mosul, Iraq, when they were you know when soldiers were pushing against the Islamic State, like pushing them away and they were going from building to building to building and they had a tank outside just firing you know heavy machine guns at the Islamic state fighters and we were just sitting inside a warehouse and i was just waiting there waiting for the you know waiting for the soldiers to clear the road so we can move one house one building ahead and and i got an email from my my equipment's manager asking me if, if i ordered a television and sent it to work <laughs> And I was like, "Of course not. Why would I order a television?" They were like, "Well, we don't know. Some people do it."
0: <laughs> I mean, you don't have an address, as you said. So that,
1: yeah, that well, I don't be. have an address now. I did back then, but like okay. you know, they thought I was doing something fishy at work, and you know, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I said, "Well, open it. I want to see. I don't know what's in it. Just open it." So I gave them permission to open, it, and they opened it, and it was lo and behold, it was uh, the best gift I've ever received from a reader literally it was like the best thing that happened like has happened to me in my career I've never had this moment in my career and I don't know if I ever will like it was a moment where you where I really understood the power of journalism and the value of journalism even if you change one person's mind that's all it takes that's all you've done your job you don't have to change a hundred people's mind or thousands of people's minds. You, all you do is move one person, and and that really solidified in my head why we do this.
0: If people wanna wanna see uh, what it is, I think it's uh, one of your top tweets uh, on your on your Twitter page, um, and you you can see the 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 flag, uh, uh, and it's a uh, uh, really yeah really really moving and. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like as a photographer, uh, you're often doing the visible work, but you yourself are very invisible, right? We read the journalist mm-hmm. who's writing. Was that like one of your first encounters with a, with a reader?
1: Yeah, it was one of the first encounters I've had with a reader. I mean, I've had a few more since, but like nothing is poignant and as as visible as that. I mean, we. I spent the last dozen years of my career... Trying to be invisible, you know. Trying to just blend in to the background and and not be part of the scene, um, and not to interrupt or not to intervene, you know, you know. And just letting people be people. And 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 this this flag, you know, reminds me that like you know that that we are human first, ultimately, before all of that. And you know, and it reminds me that you know when I see somebody in distress, you know, or that you have to do everything you can to help them before you take pictures of them, even.
0: On your website, you state that your goal is to take the viewers to the front line of conflict, struggle, and intimacy. How can one do that? And why is this so burning to you? You know, like, why is this you, your thing?
1: When I say conflict, struggle, and intimacy, it doesn't necessarily mean going to war. I mean, it could mean anything. It could be anywhere. It could be at home. It could be overseas. I mean, I think the reason why I I, I lock into those three themes is because I had a, a, a tumultuous childhood growing up. I was always arguing, and I was always unsettled. I have, uh, you know, I've had and saying no, <laughs> exactly, and I've had a very like you know, not so healthy relationship with my parents, you know. And and not so healthy relationship with like you know uh, uh, some of the people I went to school with. I mean I was bullied as a child, as a as a teenager in high school, and and that had an effect of me in, in in a weird way. But I came out of it very normal. But like I remember what it's like to be bullied. I remember what it's like to be you know have people put their thumb down on you. In that sense, the struggle can mean anything, um, and. Intimacy for me comes from the idea that I've always longed for intimacy. I think growing up with Asian parents, especially in Southeast Asia, that is like the hardest thing to do because Asian parents aren't really known for expressing intimacy or even expressing acknowledgement for that matter. And I think when you grow up in that kind of environment as a child, you, it really can feel like it's devoid of any intimacy. And so I look look for that in my life later, and I feel like now I look for that in my work. And I'm always looking for that because I think that's what makes us human, you know, is when we can be intimate. I think that's, you know, when we struggle, that makes us human. How we cope with struggle, you know, that makes us human. How we love, how we hate, how we express ourselves, that's intimacy, and, and that's what makes us human you know when i when i think of conflict i think of all the things beyond war i think of like you know the fight you're going to have with your parents with your loved one or with your boss or, you know or the you know the fight between john doe or jane doe with, with the government you know you know the struggle of protesters you know or or just you know, it can be it can also boil down to like the fight between you versus you like an internal conflict and, and it can mean a lot of things and, I, and, and I'm kind of I, I kind of represent I feel like I represent that as a person you know I'm in, always in conflict with myself and you know uh, because wh- what I want and who I am are two different things in my head and and I'm always trying to, to, to reconcile that sometimes I'm always adjusting to grow and, and it can really be in conflict with you know who I want to be you know And the same way to struggle and and the same way for intimacy, I'm always, like, growing in those departments. And I feel like that's what makes me human. And I'm, in a sense, like, uh, you know, assuming that's what makes everybody else human.
0: And so you're saying about that that internal conflict between who you were and who you want to be. Who are these two different people?
1: They're different in a sense where, I mean, who I want to be, obviously, is I want to be, I, I would like to be, the most generous giving loving you know most communicative person in the world, right, and who I am is obviously not that i 'm not like you know i try I try to be as generous as I can in my life, I try to be as giving, but I know i 'm not like i know i i don 't have enough time to give to my friends i don 't have enough time to give to my loved ones or attention or love to something and i 'm not great in those departments i i 'm very a very flawed human being i you know I struggle with intimacy sometimes and, and I, I cope by looking for that in my work.
0: That's so interesting how your, your work is, um, is helping you in that, uh, in that regard. Yeah,
1: I mean, it helps me understand people. Well, the more time I spend with people understanding like, how these things work, the more I understand about life. I mean, I learned the most about life watching people live their lives, which is a strange thing to say. I've lived, I feel like I've lived, you know... A hundred lives now at this point, watching so many people live their lives, and you know, I know how grandparenting works. I know how parenting sort of works. You know, I I, I know how like you know, uh, I know how like a rich person lived their lives. I know how a poor person lived their lives. Like you know, it's like you just watch and you just learn lessons from them, and 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 in that sense, like I'm growing, I'm learning, and I, I adjust my my future self, what I want for my future self, I'm always adjusting that. I'm always editing, self-editing what I want. And, you know, in a sense, forcing myself to self-edit who I am today and try to be better.
0: It sounds like the path that you've taken to get where you are today, um, was, it was not a straight shot, but it sounds like it's taken you the right route. It's taught you so many things along the way. Rather than asking you if there is something you do differently in your life, is there any, I don't know if it's a photography, a story, that you do differently uh, in retrospect with everything that you've learned along the way? I don't know.
1: I, I think about it sometimes. I do. This is a question I do think about sometimes uh, in retrospect. I would obviously, like, I wish, and only wish I have, like, if I had to change it or do something differently with my work, is that I would absorb the value of experience much sooner i would like concentrate on getting more experience be more in a way awake consciously like consciously awake for like not awake consciously mentally or or philosophically awake for the work that i had in my early career i never was never very philosophical early in my career and wasn't like didn't think that my work amounted to much And I think over time I developed an understanding of how this plays out, and how that success doesn't come overnight. Success comes from your 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 your, what's the word? From your sheer amount of failures and sheer amount of lessons. That's where success comes from. And I think I didn't understand that as a young person, and I just thought success would come if you do the right things. And, and that's where I put a lot of my effort and concentration on early on in my career. And I think that applies to all industries, a lot, all jobs and careers, that we teach students that success comes from doing these things, following the right steps, and you'll make it, right? And there's some self-learning along the way, but really, I've learned in the dozen years, I've made so many mistakes, I botch so many photo stories and so many assignments I made, like, you know, the day I remember the day, this is the clear one in my memory, the day Osama Bin Laden uh, was announced dead, uh, it was the evening actually, I, um, I, I knew it was big news, but I didn't understand how big it was because I didn't grow up in America. And I tried to get to Times Square to take pictures, but like traffic was just so bad, and I just kind of gave up. And I just thought, like, I'll come at it tomorrow. It'll be fine. And and But the best story, the best images for the day came from that night of celebrate. the night where people were out to, to see what was going on. The Americans were out to celebrate in Times Square. And I'd gone home to sleep because I didn't understand the gravity of it. You know? I mean, I understood that it was important, but I didn't... I didn't capture, I didn't understand that, the psychological weight of it, you know, because I didn't grow up in America. And those are the little things I wish I I took time to understand as as a young journalist, you know, more than just focusing on just doing the job.
0: Yeah like you said like there is no recipe for uh, for success and uh, and I think it is important to to reemphasize uh, the fact that uh, you need to make mistakes and fail <laughs> to learn yeah. and to grow uh, professionally and as a human. I've made
1: a lot of mistakes. I have um, I have a great boss right now, a great uh, director of photography who I think is the best boss i will ever have in my life partly only because he encourages me to make mistakes. Like it's okay. How so? In this way, where just do it, try everything, even if you suck at it, just try it. And if you suck, then uh, you, you know, so be it. We'll move on to other things. But if you think you want to keep trying, he, he doesn't mind that you fuck you, that you've you know fudged up the assignment. You know, he doesn't mind as long as you deliver something. It, it's okay if the quality is not there. The, 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 what's mad, What matters to him is that you try, and I'll never be judged on. On the quality of the work, but I'll be judged on the effort that you put in, you know, and that's how you grow i mean that's how I grew at the Los Angeles Times is that like I've had so many screw ups along the way i I overslept a major breaking news assignment i I forgot to put a memory card in my camera for a very important shoot i you know like all these little things you you make miss but when you have bosses that says. It's okay, don't worry about it. It's the greatest feeling in the world that you know you won't get yelled at. You know what I mean? That, that this doesn't feel like a punishment. This doesn't feel like work. Now it be, feels like I'm playing. When work doesn't feel like work, that's when you know you do, you're following your passion in life.
0: Marcus, we're talking about impact here. What is the photography that you think has had the most impact, whether it's on your life or on touching others? I mean,
1: the most recent things that I've, I've, I can kind of frame into this question is that the body of work that we've, I've created in Afghanistan during the fall of Afghanistan, you know, I've been told has touched a lot of Afghans, you know, not just in Afghanistan, but also Afghans all around the world. Um, many, many Afghans have written in to me and sent me messages saying that, you know, these photographs, even though they're not, like, of chrono- chronologically of, like, very specific events, but they weave together a feeling, you know, that they weave together a feeling of how Afghans felt when they were watching their country fall. That is the impact, right, when Afghans can understand and feel what it's like through just watching these images, you know, instead of reading the news or whatsoever, it captured the exact feeling that they felt. And that is the impact. I mean, and and a lot of Afghans remember that and continue to remember the work that, you know, that I've done and, and, you know, their images that have lived in people's, are living in people's memories. And that's the impact. I mean, I, I was just speaking to an Afghan uh, Air Force pilot yesterday who I you know, reached out to randomly about a story and I introduced myself as Marcus, but he doesn't know my name, which is fine, but I, when he knew that I took the picture of the two journalists who were tortured by the Taliban, he immediately knew who I was. Like, oh, you're that guy, <laughs> you know? And that is the impact in that sense, like people remember, you know, who did this work and like, you know, how this work affected them. And more importantly, that, that's the most important part is how this, the pictures affected them and made them feel. So that is the, for now, the impact. I hope that this is not the only impact I leave and hope the work, this is not the impact the work leaves. So, I, you know, I hope to have a long career and hope to create more work like this that, you know, Reminds people that that this is not just you know uh, a segregated world in that sense. I mean, if I will, uh, on the flip side, I've also heard from many Americans who have had a stake in this war, who have had a son who fought in this war, who've had like you know worked with Afghans before, who've had been to war themselves, or, or just like bystanders have written in to me during the coverage and even after the coverage, and even after you know the work was recognized that they. You know, saw in it the 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 anguish and the sadness of the Afghan people from from the American point of view. You know that this captured for them, you know, the essence of, you know, the failure of this twenty-year, forever war that America is, you know, ventured into and left in the dust.
0: We talked uh, a few minutes ago about. Your American dream. I want to go back to it. What's your American dream today? Do you still have one?
1: I don't know if I can say I have an American dream anymore, for that matter. I'm, you know, because to me, the American dream, when I was growing up, has always been owning a home, having a family, having a stable life, having friends. And, and now the dream is to live as freely as I can. And I don't know if that's very American. Maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> uh, it's, it feels like it's more European than American. But <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, that's what my European f- friends tell me. But I just want to live as freely as I can to, to roam and to explore and to see things and to understand things. And, and, but acknowledge the fact and also live with the fact that I'm going to be an outsider. I'm going to be a foreigner and I'm going to have privilege as a foreigner, no matter where I go, right? But yeah, that is the dream. The dream is to, to engage the world in ways I've never engaged. You know, growing up as a young boy in Malaysia, I could never have lived this freely. I could never have roamed the world so openly and, and, and make as many friends as easily growing up. So, I'm living a version of the life that maybe I subconsciously wanted as a child, and but never knew it until now and in in my adulthood i I now know that like i would be very unhappy if i sat down in a nine-to-five job you know in an office and saw the same people over and over again in my life you know not to say that's a bad thing but but for me personally i grew up like that so i don't want to live the same life as my childhood so that is the
0: dream in a sense well, congratulations because it sounds like you are living your dream, <laughs> and not so many people can say that. Um, and you are definitely touching uh, many, 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 many lives, and making sure that things don't go forget forgotten. Um, so, congratulations for for your work. It's uh, really amazing and truly inspiring. Oh no,
1: no, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm trying to, you know, enjoy it while I can. Nothing is permanent. Nothing is forever. And I'm just going to see how how long this ride goes for and adjust as I go basically you know who knows my body I can't
0: how do you say self edit
1: (laughs) I'm gonna self edit as I go I mean I know my body physical body cannot do this forever you know I don't know how often I mean I've been on several uh, cross continent airplane trips this year already like uh, to think of going between Europe and America, Europe and America, Europe and America like that back and forth like uh, like maybe like like 7 times or 8 times already so far is a lot for your body, you know. <laughs> I don't know if I can do like 12 to 20 hour plane rides.
0: And we're only in July.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're only we're in July. I don't know if I if I, I don't know if I can do it in 10 years or 15 years, you know, it's going to be really difficult and and let alone like if I ever have have a family settle down and have kids, I don't know if I would do that. You know, do you you never be a home. So you, I guess I would self-edit when the time comes, and I would reestablish what my my boundaries and my limits are when that happens. But for now, the goal is to live the limitless life. But yeah, I mean, I would say I was uh, lucky enough to break out of you know societal norms and cultural norms coming out of Malaysia and. Again, like, you know, coming out of the U.S., kind of breaking out of that again. So having to do it twice in a row is, uh, you know, it's very, uh,
0: what, what's the word, fulfilling. Yeah, and, I mean, it seems like it's a pattern. I think it's like, it sounds like you've been wise enough to listen to your gut feeling ever since you were a young boy, <laughs> you know? Uh, you're using this professionally now, but it's gotten you where you were, uh, where you are, and uh, and... And congrats! <laughs> no,
1: no, thank you. I appreciate it. I have to say the one thing that I, uh, that I, I do learn from, from my time studying engineering is that I've never lost my fascination for aerospace stuff. When, when the drone strike happened in Afghanistan, um, the, drones, the American drone strike that killed the Afma, uh, ten people from the Afmadi family, and including seven children. We were one of the first journalists on scene. And from that experience, from my previous experience in Iraq, uh, having done airstrikes before, having covered airstrikes before, I knew one of the first things we needed to confirm was whether or not it was a drone strike or whether or not it was a bomb attack, like a, a, a bombing attack. And I went up high, I looked straight down, and I saw the point of impact, and I went downstairs immediately into the wreckage, asked for a shovel, and started digging. And, uh, and upon, like, a few minutes later, I dug out, like, this part, and I started to put the pieces together and look for serial numbers and all that stuff, and we eventually figured out it was uh, the, uh, uh, a part of a, um, a Hellfire missile. And 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 I think a lot of that experience comes like a lot of that fascination comes from having like, you know, developed that in in, in engineering school and then wanting to understand things and, and being fascinated with aerospace stuff. So I still keep that fascination. I'm always like looking at what warplanes are flying over the air, looking at tanks, looking at all the stuff and I'm just like I'll never get old. it never gets old
0: you must be having a blast sitting on planes going around the world <laughs>
1: I, I do I do and I get my, my favorite fascination my favorite blast is riding in helicopters like I ah, love yeah. helicopters like
0: I've only done that once yeah that, that's that that is very impressive
1: Yeah I think that, I think at this point in my career clocked in more than one in a more than 100 helicopter rides already and in all kinds of helicopters and last year I was in uh, a Black Hawk helicopter and the doors were just open and we we didn't have seatbelts, nothing. <laughs> it was just like, just hold on to something and hope you don't fall out. There we
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. It's oh, been hey. a delight talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me in the show. I really appreciate your time.
0: What a life story, right? And Marcus is barely 40. I really enjoyed this conversation, as I do every week, about the positive impact that here today, pictures can have. And listening to your guts can completely change your life. Thank you so much for tuning in and for listening to this new episode of the butterfly effect, L'effet papillon. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment to share it with your WhatsApp group of friends on social media. If you have an extra 30 seconds, please give us five stars and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Podcast Addict. I wish you a wonderful day and can't wait to continue this journey with you to talk about positive impact and the butterfly effect. no lectures.